Welcome back, everyone, to Behavioral Science for Brands, a podcast where we bridge the gap between academics and marketing. Every other week, we sit down and decode the science behind some of America's most successful brands. I'm Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Shotton. Today, we're doing candy, comedy, and the power of a cue. Let's get into it. So, Richard... Today, we're just having plain fun. We're talking candy bars. Your favorite candy bar growing up as a kid? A Wambar. A Wambar. <laughs> yeah. Describe for our American audience, our mostly American <laughs> audience, what a Wambar so, is. It was a very, very chewy sweet Got it. in a bar. And it had these little sprinkles in the middle that kind of popped on your tongue. Uh, like the, like literally popped as you as they yeah, sat on your yeah. tongue. And well, the, 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 I think you can still get them now. But I remember them as being like the size of your head almost. You know, <laughs> a couple of pennies you buy them. And now they've just, they call it shrinkflation, don't they? They're, they're tiny. <laughs> they're getting a little smaller. Yeah, a little they're like smaller. Size of your, half your thumb now. I was trying to think of the word pop rocks in America would be those those that you put on your tongue and they snack, crackle, pop. Sounds like this, that. Yeah, pop yeah. rocks. <laughs> Too funny. <laughs> and today's candy bar of much interest is the Snickers bar. One of the most popular candy bars in the world accounting for over $2 billion worth of annual sales for the M&M Mars company, sold in over 80 countries, enjoyed by millions of people each year. But before we go deep on Snickers, I was surprised to learn that Snickers was not Snickers in your homeland of the United Kingdom. That's right. For most of my childhood, it was called a marathon. And then to much consternation, probably when I was about 15 or 16, they changed the name to Snickers. People hated it to begin with. Now that's a distant memory. But quite a lot of candy bars did this, where there would be different names in different countries, mm. and eventually they rational, rationed them all to rationalise them. Rationalise. Rationalise them all. Yeah. Starburst, I think you call them. Yes. They were opal fruits originally. Can you spell that for the listeners at home? Oh, so opal is like the, the gem, O-P-A-L. Yeah. And then fruits. Which I would guess it's the same spell. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's exactly what it is. Opal fruits were starbursts. Marathon bars were Snickers. Yeah. And and you, you call them, and I call them Pop Rocks. And Pop Rocks, yeah. <laughs> yeah Pop I don't rock. think we had a name for them. <laughs> okay, so let's do a little yeah. history on the brand, the Snickers brand. Uh, Snickers bar, for any of you who have not had this delicious candy, is peanuts, nougat, and caramel. The chocolate coating was not there when they started the brand. It was added in 1937. I was at an agency who had a, uh, a biscuit brand, and I remember them seriously discussing whether one of their messages should be, and now with real chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I think they eventually realized that people would start to think, well, what the hell have you been feeding us for the last 20 years? This was in about 2005 as yeah. well. You can't get away with that. You say, you, yeah. say, you know what? Let's not. Let's leave the yeah, new yeah, out. Yeah, Let's yeah. leave it out. <laughs> Snickers famously used in movies, TV shows. It's been on The Simpsons. It's been in Seinfeld. It was featured in the Hangover movie. A fun fact, the largest Snicker bars, Richard, was made in 2012, weighed over 1,000 pounds, and had 10,000 peanuts, which made me think, how many peanuts are in a regular Snickers bar? I was going to say, that's quite... That's quite a mean ratio. Would that work out like 10 peanuts a pound for that big one? So that, hopefully they're putting a bit more generous they, normally. A little bit more. 16 peanuts in every Snickers bar. 16 peanuts in every Snickers bar. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> so, delicious candy bar, best-selling candy bar today. Obviously, the brand, the product itself is excellent. 
but a lot of the success attributable to this epic marketing campaign, You're Not You When You're Hungry. You're Not You When You're Hungry, created by BBDO. First year that they launched this campaign, 15.9% increase in global sales. That's hellishly impressive for such a big brand. Absolutely. When you're already one of the world's biggest. And really built on an insight that came to life through the creative. Yeah, I, what I like about this campaign is they use a very simple idea from psychology. But even though it's simple, most brands do not do it. So the experiment I want to talk about, which gives us a bit of evidence of this, is an experiment by Sarah Milne, who's at the University of Bath. Mm-hmm. We've used her before. Yeah, I think we have. Yeah, so um, I can't remember which uh, episode we used it in, but she ran a study back in 2002. Very simple. She invites 228 people into a lab randomizes them into three groups. First group, the control, are just invited in, given a diary, and then told to record all the exercise they do over the next two weeks. Now, when they come back two weeks later, 35% of them have exercised at least once a week for 15 minutes. That's the that's the baseline. That's the benchmark. Got it. Next two groups, she then tries to boost that number. So second group, she brings them in, gives them the diary, and then plays them a motivational video about the wonders of exercise. And even though this group come out of the video, say they are enthused, pumped up, excited about exercising, when they come back two weeks later, there's barely any increase in exercise Mm. levels. So 38% of them have exercised at least once a week. She calls this the intention to action gap, which is essentially the idea that if you motivate people to want to do something. High intention. High intention doesn't necessarily convert to behavior change. Mm. Now, that I would say is a repeated mistake of advertisers. What they focus on is boosting appeal and boosting motivation. But Milne says that's not enough. Motivation is a necessary but not sufficient condition for behavior change. So final group, she tries to unearth that missing ingredient. She invites that group into the lab, gives them the diary, plays them the video, But then she says to them, look, tell me when, where, and with whom you're going to exercise. Mm. That group comes back two weeks later, and you get a massive change. 91% of them have exercised at least once. Wow. So you jump from 38% with the motivated group to 91% with this group. What Milne argues is that by getting people to stay when and where they're going to exercise, so I might say, okay, I'm going to exercise the Dulwich gym on a Thursday evening. When that moment comes around, when Thursday evening comes around, I'm reminded of this vague aspiration to exercise. Mm. And you know, by being reminded of it, I move to action. That cue or trigger moment acts as a catalyst to convert intention to action. Now, her argument is loads of people forget to do that. They create the motivation, but they don't create this cue or trigger moment. What's so brilliant about Snickers is they are very clear on the trigger moment. They are very clear about what moment you should consume their products when you're hungry. They associate this feeling of hangriness or tiredness or confusion through hunger with purchasing a Snickers. It's very simple, but it's a very powerful way of converting intention to action. We even see in the sales data at airports 
Snickers bars are the number one candy sold over Milky Way because Milky Way is seen as an indulgence. Snickers is seen as a meal replacement. So we even see in their own data that that insight is born from data that they have yeah. about where yeah. they're being, where, where their sales are successful. What you've done is you, you, you've associated purchasing your product with a particular time, place or mood. What other brands need to do is think, well, okay, we've, been, we've made our candy bar or our trainers or our gym membership appealing. Right. How do we create this time, place or mood that people associate with us? It's not enough to just make it appealing. We need a trigger to actually get people to use the product, yes. buy the thing, yes. use it again. And if you look at some of the best ever campaigns, you see this happening again and again. So... Kit Kat for probably 60 or 70 years. Need now, a break. Drums, exactly. Uh, or my favorite example, champagne. Mm. So you think about wines. There are loads of beautiful tasting wines, but none of them sell half as much as champagne. Champagne is a multi-billion pound industry because they have brilliantly fused the product with a particular feeling. Celebrations. My mum hates drinking. She doesn't even like champagne. But New Year's Eve, she'll go out and buy a bottle because it's the thing to do. <laughs> That's right. It is so welded in people's minds that even if they don't like the product, they end up purchasing it. That, I think, is a huge scale example of a brand very successfully identifying very clearly and concretely a particular, a particular mood that they're associated with. We're going to dig deeper into this, actually, in a future episode coming up on Diamonds. And the moment of when you should buy a diamond as an engagement ring. Yeah. And that was a major success of that, of that campaign yes. as well. Yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant yeah. campaign. So Snickers, clearly excellent at drawing this connection between hunger and using Snickers to satiate that hunger. What other behavioral science has Snickers employed in their campaigns? I think the way you can differentiate them from all those other brands we mentioned, Kit Kat or, or Champagne, is they haven't created just a dry trigger to purchase. Everything about you're not you when you're hungry is about comedy. It's mm. trying to be as amusing and witty as possible. It's not just a protein bar. It's, it's not just, yeah. exa exactly. And that's, I think, interesting because it's quite different from how most brands are behaving. There's an awful lot of evidence that brands are moving away from the humor. You know, Kantar have done an amazing bit of an analysis, 200,000 plus global ads. And back in 1990, 53 of them aimed to amuse people. By 2020, it was down to 34%. So advertisers are moving away from humor as a tactic to sell. Now, that Kantar data should concern us all because humor isn't a nice to have. There is an awful lot of evidence that shows that you can boost recall and other benefits by behaving humorously. So one of my favorite studies in the area is by Baines back in 2014. Um, works with a group of old people, tests their memory. So they give a list of information mm -hmm. And then they are asked how many of the words they can remember. Half the group then go off and watch a humorous video. Half the group watch a, a less funny video. He then gives the you know, list of words again, asks them to recall as many as they can. And he finds that there is a much greater uplift 
on that second attempt at doing the, the task amongst people who'd been primed with the humorous video. So I think it's a 44% uplift amongst them versus a 20% uplift amongst the non-humorous group. So you have many studies like Baines's study that show this benefit of humor. But maybe what's most powerful is it's not just one-off studies. There's a wonderful meta-analysis by Eisend, who I think is an, an Austrian psychologist. So he looks at 38 different papers and experiments on humor and finds the repeated result that if you use humor, you boost recall of the product, you boost recall of the brand, you, re you boost positivity, and probably most importantly, you boost purchase intent. Mm. So there is a really powerful, robust data set that suggests humor is one of the best tactics a brand can use to increase positivity. Why do we think that humor has been less used over the last 30 years? Why has it been on such a decline? I, th I think that is a, a great question. I think one reason why it's dropped so much is that we've obviously had quite a lot of events happening over the last 15 years, to say it yeah. mildly. You know, we've had financial crashes, we've had COVID, we've had pandemics. And I think the reaction of the ad industry has been, well, at times of trouble, we need to show empathy. Yeah. But what people want is not fake empathy from their bank or their car. It's just not believable. I think what people actually want at times of trouble is a little bit of light relief. A, res a respite. Yes, ex exactly. That's a reasonable thing to expect from an ad. Yeah. Empathy, it's, it's not believable. And actually, if you look at Hollywood's reaction to bleak times, that's exactly what you see. There was a wonderful bit of analysis of the IMDb database. Yes, this is the all the people that look at all the movies in uh, globally, I think. Yeah, yeah ex exactly. So there's thousands of movies on this. And I think it was someone called Bo McCready looked over the last hundred years what proportion of films have been comedies. And what you see is that real times of global problems, Great Depression, start of World War II, you see spikes in the proportion of comedies. During uh, bad times, more comedy. Exactly. Because what do you want? You want a bit of right relief to take your mind off all the, the, the rubbish that's happening in the world. So Hollywood recognize the role of humor. I think advertisers are making a mistake by following a different path and thinking that it's you know, seriousness and empathy that, that that's what's desired. And, you know, I think the type of humor that's used is also really instructive because, you know, yeah, Snickers is using almost a self-deprecating humor. You're not you when you're hungry is about you. It's about the person you become yeah. versus so much of the advertising, especially in 2020 and 2021, with serious, important issues of racial justice and social inequality. Brands almost felt like I think they couldn't bring humor to the table because they would be off key to what the what what the world was going through. But to me that's a mistake about human nature. Even in the most bleak times, you don't spend all your time thinking about that yeah. event. Yeah. Now we're thinking about much more mundane, trivial, personal issues most of the time. Yes. And that's the area I think adverts should play in. You've got a reasonable role of a bit of light relief. I think that will always be be appropriate. You don't have to reference the dark things that are happening at the time 
you, I think, are just present at those moments. And especially being aware of your category. A candy bar plays a role of indulgence and relief. You know, it doesn't have to play the role of a, yeah. of a moral entity all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a lot of evidence that if you put people in a good mood, they then are more likely to notice your ads, they're more likely to believe them, and they're also less price sensitive. So people need to move away from thinking that humour is something that's flippant and not appropriate for a serious business and recognise that humour can be a way, obliquely, of generating your underlying sales needs. You know, what strikes me about humour, Richard, is that it really is such a straight shot way to change the mood of the person receiving the humor, right? It immediately either draws you to laughter, it immediately draws you to change your perspective, and that change of mood is critical. Yes, it's, it might well be a fleeting change, but even that is enough for a commercial advantage. So there's a lovely set of studies from 2007 by Fred Bronner. So he's at the University of Amsterdam, and he got 1,287 people to flip through a newspaper, and then after they'd read the newspaper, he asked them whether they were in a good mood or bad mood. And then he asked them to recall as many ads as they could. And if people were in a bad mood, they remembered about 35% of ads. If they were in a good mood, it was about 50% of ads. Hmm. So you have an almost 50% improvement in recall based on someone's mood. Now, that's probably because the fouler our temperament, the more our field of vision narrows. of interest narrows yeah what he showed was that you know in the, in the reverse if someone's feeling positive they're much more open they're much more likely to notice you so that's one big benefit that mood brings the second big benefit is around believability of message so i re-ran bronner's study a couple of years ago about five years ago and rather than ask people whether they record the ads ask them whether they believe the ads and I saw an even bigger uplift, mm. about the order of 60% improvement. So people who were happy believed ads about 60% more than those who were unhappy. Now, Daniel Kahneman argues there is an evolutionary rationale for this, that if we were in a foul mood, it signified danger and the need to think critically. Mm. If we were in a good mood, it signified an absence of danger and mitigated the need to think critically. So if you want people to interpret your message without scepticism, either target them in a good mood or, as you say, put them in a good mood. There are lots of very practical benefits to the use of something that seems as trivial as humor. I don't know if this is a divergence from what we're talking about here, but it often strikes me in pharmaceutical ads that, you know, they show people laughing and smiling and rowing boats on the lake yeah. or riding bikes in the mountains while they're describing some pretty serious side effects. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a difference between, I think that's a confusion of telling rather than showing. Yeah. Just because you show someone that's laughing doesn't mean the viewer's going to laugh. I that's mean, right. The point is you should tell them a joke and then they'll, they'll yeah. be positive and then they're more likely to believe what you what you say. Um, but there, there is, it might, might feel like the really serious subjects I've got to be careful in this area. But I think people go too far in the other direction. There's an amazing set of studies called the ostrich effect. Mm. So George Lowenstein, who's at Carnegie Mellon, ran these studies. And he works with 
Vanguard, who are an American fund provider and a Swedish equivalent. And what he shows is that when the stock market is rising, people check their portfolios reasonably regularly. But when the stock market declines, they don't want to open. tune out. Exactly. They don't <laughs> want to check. <laughs> they don't want to find out the bad news. So his argument is, look, this is illogical. The information is equally valuable whether you're in a good or bad mood. But what he says happens is most people, if they're faced with an uncomfortable situation, they have two choices. They can either resolve the issue, but that's often hard work, or they can just ignore it. And the ostrich effect is the finding that we often would rather stick our heads in the sand metaphorically than go to the hard effort of resolving the problem. So if you deal with a serious subject and try and scare people into interest or make them yeah, fearful. Head goes in the ground. Head goes in the ground. They'll ignore the messaging. But if you can treat it with a little bit more humor, then you've got an opportunity to persuade. So one of the most successful public service campaigns ever in, in Australia was called Dumb Ways to Die. And it essentially talks about all the ridiculous ways someone could end their, end their life. You know, you could electric yourself, be eaten by crocodiles. It's this wonderful song. And the point of the song is at the end of it, the dumbest way to die is to go across the tracks on a metro and get hit by a, mm. a, a subway. R horrible subjects, but they actually encourage engagement by dealing with it in a lighthearted way. I think what most campaigns do is the complete opposite. They try and scare people. They try and shock them. This is your brain on drugs. I don't yeah, know if you that yeah, American yeah, yeah, campaign. Yeah. yeah. It might win out awards, but it's often not the most effective at changing behavior. So we've been talking candy bars. We've been talking comedy. We've been talking the power of triggers and cues. Let's wrap up today's episode with some lighthearted humor. All right, I'm going to get us started, Richard. Why do behavioral scientists have such bad teeth? Uh, I have no idea. Floss aversion. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, see if you can beat it. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, okay. I don't know any more behavioral science jokes <laughs> rub my arm out there but my my favorite kind of academic joke is a classics professor walks into a tailor's and the tailor says euripides and he says eumenides i think that i think we might just go for the loss of version on that uh Euripides, and then you said what? Eumenides. I, th I think I might have. Uh, I think it's funny. <laughs> I don't know that okay. one. <laughs> yeah, two Greek tailors. Yeah, two Greek writers. Yeah. Exactly. So, Richard, as we'd like to do, let's wrap it up for our listeners today. There are two big takeaways from today's podcast. The first is the principle of creating a cue or trigger moment. So, that's based on the Sarah Milne work that we discussed. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea that motivation alone isn't enough. And what you need to do is combine desire for your product with a very clear time, place, or mood that people associate with consumption or purchase of your product. Acts as a trigger. Exactly. Second key learning, I think, from today's podcast is the humor and Jokes and funniness are not nice to have. Even if you work in a very serious business, think about how you can be a bit more lighthearted. There is an awful lot of behavioral science work that suggests it will boost recall, it will boost attention, boost positive feelings towards the brand, and probably most importantly, purchase intent. Thanks for tuning in today to Behavioral Science for Brands podcast. I'm Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Shotton. 
And as always, please come to us with ideas for new topics, new things for us to cover. Visit us at theconsumerbehaviorlab.com. Connect with us on social media or drop us an email at hello at theconsumerbehaviorlab.com. Behavioral Science for Brands is brought to you today by Method One, a digital-first marketing company that brings science to the art of persuasion. They are behavior change experts who solve business challenges by creating meaningful connections with consumers. Method One has deep disciplines across many brand categories to unlock behavior change that fuels brand growth. Visit them at methodone.com.